New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mandrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mandrinos. Hello, everybody. I'm Jim Mandrinos, and welcome to the Comedy Legacy Podcast. Today's kind of an odd show for me, uh, and one that I think you're really going to enjoy. Um, when I started in comedy, I was incredibly young, and everyone was so much older than me. And years later, when I'd bump into the guys that were veterans when I started, they would always say, oh, man, I watched you grow up and stand up. And, and there's a little feeling of pride, you know, knowing that you might have helped shepherd somebody along. You might have done something to make it a little bit easier for me in the business. But today I get to talk to uh, somebody that I saw grow up in comedy. Um, when I first met uh, today's guest, she was, I believe I met her when she was 17. Um, and she was handing out flyers for a comedy club in the city. And I've watched her grow since then. Um, amazingly, she's performed all over the world. Uh, she is one of the smartest, most savvy business people, especially in terms of using social media. There's so much we can learn from her. Uh, sit back, enjoy, and uh, join me on this conversation with our today's guest on the Comedy Legacy Podcast, Miss Liz Mealy. All right, so this one's going to be fun for me because I know my next guest uh, said she was a wee child. And yeah. uh, considering that everyone on the podcast has said, Jim, I've known you since you were a child. It's fun for me to actually say that to another human being. Yeah. Um, and uh, she tours all around the world. She does amazing things, uh, both concert-wise and self-promotion-wise and on stage and uh, viral videos, like everything that today's comic encapsulates. Liz Mealy's our guest. How are you doing in quarantine, Liz? I'm doing okay. It is, it is fun. My dad still asks about you. He's like, how's Jim doing? I was like, I think he's good. I was like, I was like, I need to be a better friend. I was like, I was like, cause he'll even be like, how's your boyfriend? I was like, I think he's good. Like, I was like, I don't know. That's not what we talk about. We don't talk about feelings in my relationship. Um, but yeah, you, you, um, you have known me, I think since I was 17, maybe 17. Like it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. I missed and, your first year at Ha cause I was banned from the club. Yeah, well, it didn't take me too long to get banned. So I was just like, I was like, I will follow in the footsteps of my mentor. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. If you're not banned from at least one club, you're not doing something right. Also, if you've never been banned from Ha, you weren't doing something right. Because yeah. honestly, if you weren't, if you were, if you were a sheep, you still work there. Like, I mean, and, and where has that led you? Like, no offense to my friends, but um, yeah. <laughs> But it is like, it, it, it was hurtful and I was sad about it, but it was also yeah. the reason I blossomed is because I wasn't, I didn't have the safety net of shittery that was ha. Huh. You know, I'm, I'm also, there's good and bad to be had from every club. And this is one of the things that I, I love talking to about comics. Um, you weren't treated well there. A lot of comics weren't treated well there. Yeah. Um, but there were massive amounts of shows that you could get good. I, I think the, the hard thing for a comic to understand is when to walk away from a bad environment. Or to even recognize a bad environment. Because at the end of the day, what was so um, influential and important about Ha, and I do give it them a lot of credit for my growth, is it had three, like, it had two rooms 
and it, on a weekday it had I think six shows like it had a stupid amount of shows just in one day let alone one week and in the beginning especially when I'm talking to younger comics you just need to get comfortable on stage. You just need to be comfortable bombing. You need to be comfortable saying your words. You need repetitions to remember your words and 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 really just figure yourself out. And you can't do that without constant stage time. And what's the hardest thing to get in the first one to four years of your career is stage time. So I was given oddly a gift, a very toxic gift. And I think at some point it would have had diminishing returns if I stayed there. Mm -hmm. But I almost like, that's why I really feel both working there was a blessing, but also getting kicked out was a blessing because it was so easy to get stage time there. And I was so ingrained in that culture. And, you know, you come from a home of abuse. What is, what is a work environment of abuse it, to you? You're like, yeah, everything sucks. And that's how life works. So when I got kicked out at 19, it pushed me to experience different stages, different environments, um, different ways that club clubs work and different audiences. And it made me um, grow in a way that I wouldn't, like Ha made me grow the initial growth, but getting kicked out and working other clubs and working on how to get stage time and communicate with bookers and, and, and sell myself is what really made me grow into the comic I am today. Yeah, and especially on the business side, but I also I want to talk more about the artistic to start because when you started, you know the the um, and again it's never a compliment when they say it. The tag of great writer was put on you. Like Liz is a great writer, but she's doing deadpan stuff, and then suddenly your deadpan stuff became what it always was, but what nobody could see. Just your confidence on stage, your ability ability and willingness to stand behind your material and not goofball it up to sell a joke. Yeah. When, when did you feel that turn? When did you feel that you were able to use that confidence in the way you wanted to? I really do think it took like 10, 11 years. Like I, I've always suffered from low self-esteem and I thought, I don't know if you experienced this, but for whenever somebody would be like, you're a great writer or you're a good performer, I would be like, I tricked them. Like I tricked them. Like they'd be like, oh, your stuff is really smart. And I'd be like, ha, I'm not smart. I tricked you. <laughs> like it just felt like I couldn't absorb the compliments because I didn't feel like they were true. And it felt like anything I did wasn't good enough. And I, even when I was getting good responses, I felt like I could have been doing better or I should have been doing better in my career or I should have been further. Or um, if people really enjoyed me, I'd have this massive following. So I always found an excuse to belittle my abilities and my efforts. And I think with, honestly, with therapy and having good friendships and like, like longstanding friendships and, and having good peers that believed in me, it took a long time for me to hear it. But when I started to think of a joke, get stuck and pull it out in a way that only I believed in it. Like, have you ever, like a good example is Adrian Appalucci is a good friend of mine. And she has this superpower where like, she'll have an early idea. She'll be like, Hey, I'm thinking about doing a bit about this. What do you think? And I'll be like, I don't see it, man. And then the next day it's her best bit. Like, it's like to the point where I'm like, how did, like, I, I couldn't even see you turning that premise into anything. And it's now the funniest thing I've ever seen. And to me, it felt, she might not feel like it's innate, but that was always, when I looked at her, her superpower. And it took me 10 years to go, I can make this work. It feels like 
The premise is too sloppy. It feels like it's too much of a stretch. It feels like nobody cares. It feels like it's a boring topic. But I go, I'm passionate about it. And I, ha I now feel like I can make any joke work. And that, that confidence in my writing ability took a long time. So, so let's, um, let's talk about writing process. Because um, we've had a couple of conversations, not in a lot of years, but we had a couple of conversations about how you write, which yeah. is a lot different than how a lot of the comics write. So can you talk us through kind of the, the blossoming of an idea when you get an idea to how you bring it on stage? Yeah, it's changed a little bit, honestly, in the last five years. Weirdly enough, my iPhone has changed my writing, but it's still... Um, mostly the same it's you know it's the initial idea and i always say i think it's really detrimental for people to believe an idea has to be like i think this is going to be funny or i think this is funny it's usually just a sticky idea just something that makes me it usually comes from an extreme emotion i'm you know completely confused i'm absolutely enraged i am overjoyed i am deeply depressed it's like this extreme emotion for something that has happened or how i feel or my opinion and it feels sticky in the sense that I can't stop thinking about it. I am so scared about this issue. I am so pissed off at this person. I am so confused about this process. And so I write down just the thought, you know, I, I don't understand how umbrellas haven't improved. Like, why is it that they're still the same as they were in like the 60s? So I, it might not feel like an idea, but it is something that bothers me every time it rains. So I would just write the idea down. And then at some point, either the fact that I've written it down and just the, uh, the spark, like they say with creative processes, just putting something down or just thinking about it. When I go for a run, when I talk with a friend, it won't even be an active process. It'll just kind of be in the back of the mind and I'll almost have like an impulse. I'll be like, ah, I feel like I got to flesh out this umbrella idea. And I'll just start taking that one line or those couple of lines and I'll just start writing everything that I feel applies to it. And that'll be maybe, it could be a page, it could be five pages, but it's just unfiltered, how do I feel about this topic and it, wherever it goes. And then before I go on stage, if I do a new material night or what have you, it's about what are the, the main ideas of this thing? Is it, you know, umbrellas need a new inventor? And this is, all, I don't have an umbrella joke, but like, <laughs> is it that, you know, umbrellas have uh, caused racism? I don't know, like whatever it is, but I'll find the three different ideas in my rant and in my, my fleshing out that I think have legs. And then I start trying them on stage. So I would say five years ago, almost pre iPhone for me, because it took me a long time to get a smartphone. I would just, it, the joke had to be like 70% written out. And I would use the audience to kind of guide me to what people think is funny or has legs or what people are really resonating with. Now I can try a joke that's like 20% an idea and I'll just turn on my recorder on my phone and I'll just let myself talk out of my ass. And in that kind of, it's going to be sloppy. Like it's going to be too long, meander in ways that are unhelpful. But in that, I'll find nuggets of idea. It's like almost a second way of fleshing out the idea. So the first one is like alone. And then the second one is public without me really memorizing exactly what I was trying to do. And then I'll listen to the recordings. I'll transcribe them. And then I start all over again. Okay, this is the fleshed out idea. What from this new ranted idea do I think has legs? Then I kind of, you know, try to get that 50%. Then I try it again. And then each time it's just, to me, we're editors and anybody that doesn't take the time to 
hone the idea and edit the idea and really figure out what you're trying to say and what's important to you and what's getting a response, that's when I think both jokes are either stunted, they're shorter than I think they should be, or they're, they're um, not fully formed ideas, or they're too long and they're ranty and you might get three big laughs, but it took six minutes. And really, I think in six minutes, you should have 30 big laughs. So I've become a storyteller because of this process, but I've also become very jokey because of this process, because it's like, if I'm gonna tell this six minute story, I'm gonna have you laughing the whole time. And so every time I would do like a six minute story, it'd be like, this, this, this is too much talking. This line has to be bigger. And I'm a very visual person. So even if I'm auto recording and listening, I always transcribe. And I, I don't think my process is right. And I don't think any, I don't think if I taught like, cause like you teach classes and stuff. If I told kids like, this is what you have to do. They'd be like, this feels like homework. And I'd be like, yeah, I hate it. I hate my process. Sometimes it's exhausting. I like, I will have something on my phone that says, Liz, transcribe today. And I'll be like, no, <laughs> I don't want to. But once I transcribe it, I'll go, oh, I forgot about that line. And actually, if I move that line to the back, it'll have a bigger impact rather than I've been doing it up front and it doesn't make sense. Like transcribing a joke 10 times has made it tighter. It has made it a bigger idea and has also made um, a stronger impact because I'm only using the words that are necessary. So it's to me, but I also have longer jokes than most of my friends. Like my average bit is between a minute and a half and four minutes. And a lot of my jokes are between five and seven. And yes, there's baby punchlines the whole time, but everything is building up to this one big punchline. And I just try to make it as entertaining as possible because I'm like, I want people to learn this lesson, but I have to talk about this to get there. All right. So I want to talk about something that I've noticed in your growth, which is amazing. Um, your use of physicality and your use of silence on stage. You will take a pause with a Jack Benny-like quality. <laughs> you, you have no fear of taking a pause if, if it furthers your punchline. Yeah. How difficult was that? Because I remember when you first started, you, you used to like to have your jokes packed back to back. I think as most new comics do, there's a little yeah. bit of fear uh, of, of the silence. But, you know, it, even in watching... Uh, your latest special last night, which is on YouTube, and everyone should go watch it. Um, mm -hmm. Watching your latest special last night, some of the pauses you took were were daring. And some of them, you could literally drive a truck through some of those pauses, but they were all the right amount. How long did it take for you to trust yourself on the performer side as a writer to know that the pauses were part of the writing? I don't know if I know. I just know that it had an impact on me when I saw other people do it. And I think in general, I am a, I'm a rush to slow down kind of person. Like if, 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 if we ran into each other on the street and I was so excited to tell you a story, I'd be like, oh my God, Jim, this thing happened. It was crazy. I'm like very much like an energetic child that had too much like sugar. I'd be like, this thing happened and it was crazy and da 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 and guess what? And he'd be like, what? This thing happened. Like it was always a little bit a part of my personality to like almost run people over with my thoughts and ideas and then kind of be like, let me set a stage for you. Like I almost have always used pauses even as a person to create silly tension or dramatic tension to get attention. 
And I think I've noticed that even with like my boyfriend, like some of the biggest laughs I've had just privately with my boyfriend is something will happen and we won't talk about it for like two minutes. And I'd be like, remember when that thing happened? And we'll just like bust out laughing. Cause it's like not the time and we've both forgotten about it. And it's like, and it's stupid and it's like silly, but it's like, there is something weirdly innate about my pauses that I don't, I, just, I think I just naturally am a person like that. But then also to me, comedy is about playing with tension and you could, there's so many different ways you can play with tension. And I guess I just leaned on the silences because I liked them and they worked and I thought they were impressive. Like the people I think I've learned from using silences is like Ted Alexandro, um, Greg Giraldo, um, God, who else? Um, I, I'm not to say that I don't like people that don't use them, but there's, I've always been impressed by the people that have used them. And I think they were just teachers for me. So I think it's some of it's innate, some of it's like, oh, I like, I like that. Like the same way that you see somebody go, you know, a basic tool is the rule of threes, but then you see somebody break the rule of threes and you're like, I want to break the rule of threes. Like, that's fun. <laughs> like, so I think I would see somebody do something daring. And I think when you're younger, you think I want to be brave enough to do that. And you start experimenting with it. You know, it was hard in the beginning because as a young woman, as a woman in general, as somebody that, um, especially in the beginning, didn't have confidence, I would get heckled a lot in those pauses and they would ruin the joke. And what I really learned is I kind of have to punch people in the face in the beginning and be like, I deserve your respect and I have punchlines and you are wrong about your prejudice against what you think is a funny person. So that by the time I got to something with a longer pause, they knew that it was purposeful as, as less than inexperience or not knowing what to say next. Like, I do think you have to have experience and confidence and it has to exude from you so that people don't think that pause is a mistake. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and then physicality. Yeah. And then I would say physicality. I mean, you've known me when I just was like a stick standing up there and I didn't even move my hands, even though I gesticulate like a cat toy. Like I just feel like I don't know, like my hands aren't a part of me sometimes. So um, I've really become not super physical. I still am like barely deviate from the same spot, but I've become more, um, just myself on stage, which is I'm very passionate. I'm very angry. I rant. I use my hands like a crazy Italian. And I think that only started to come about like three years ago, which is a little crazy because I remember how uncomfortable any kind of physicality on stage was for me. And now using inflection with my voice, um, even having a range of how I say stuff, yelling, um, I didn't know how to yell on stage until like five years ago and I didn't like it. And now I'm like, I yell so much in real life. Like I'm, if I'm going to be true to myself and how this story really came about, I need to learn to really show the darker side of who I am, which is I freak out. I have meltdowns. I yell, I curse. I, you know, I'm, I'm an, a really aggressive, passionate person. And I, I think that's what I'm most proud of with the special is that you see more of who it is to be my friend or my enemy, I don't know, <laughs> like, than, than you did in my past uh, albums. Let's, um, let's talk about the beginnings because a lot of people don't realize that you started in comedy as a fan. 
you have a natural love of comedy. And I remember talking to you really early uh, when I first met you and you were busting out references of comics that you had no godly reason of knowing who they were. So when did you fall in love with the art form and what made you decide to become a comic? So I probably discovered it when I was like 13, maybe 14. I, I didn't know what it was. Like I knew I wanted to be funny and I knew I wanted attention. So those were always very important to me. And I think, you know, I was a teenager in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. And so I thought I wanted to be like Sandra Bullock, like in the 90s, like a funny, I was doing pratfalls. But again, I was never a very physical person. And I was always a very shy and um, uncomfortable person that I would watch Sandra Bullock being funny, but I was like, I don't want to be funny in that way. I want to be funny and I want to be received the way she's being received, but not that way. And there was always just a divide. So I thought I wanted to be a funny actress, but I was like, I don't know which funny actress because Sandra Bullock is getting the responses I want, but isn't what I want to do. And then just, you know, bored teenager flipping through channels. I was either on Comedy Central or HBO. I saw stand up and I was like, it just clicked. I was like, yes. Yes, I get because I was always a writer like I always wrote little short stories, but I'm dyslexic and I didn't want to show anybody my writing and stand up felt like the perfect compromise. I get to get my thoughts out. I get to express myself, but nobody ever sees the physical writing of it because to me it was all garbage and jumbled and and spelled wrong and stuff and it was embarrassing. And so it just felt like this perfect compromise of attention being funny and getting my writing out and my opinions out without feeling embarrassed. And as soon as I discovered it, it was like, it just opened up a door to me where I just started looking for it everywhere I could. And I fell in love with a lot of comics that became famous now, but you know, in the early nineties, they were truly nobodies. Like you don't realize when somebody's on premium blends that they, they're still a waiter <laughs> and, they, and they, you know, and they, nobody knows who they are, but to me, they were famous. Like I remember seeing, Nick Swartzen's premium blend or, you know, Greg Giraldo or, you know, I don't know, Bill Burr. Like there were so many people that were on like, like half hour presents and, and premium blends that in my mind, they were famous. And I, I still quote Jim Gaffigan's first premium blend. Like it's still the, one of the funniest ones ever put out in my mind, but it was, what I would do is I would see somebody. So I would see, let's say Ted Alexandro's you know, half hour special. And I'd be like, this guy's hilarious. And the way Comedy Central works, especially in the early 90s, early, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, is they reran these things a million times. I wish they still did this. So I would be like, Ted Alexandro. And then I would look, you know, to see when he was going to be there next. And I would write it down in my notebook so that I could go and throw a VHS and, and tape it. And then I would bring it to my friends at a sleepover and I'd be like, you got to see this guy. And then all my friends would watch it and then we would quote them. And then I became this um, mixtape DJ of stand-up with my friends where I would go to a sleepover and I'd be like, you got to see this guy, Mitch Hedberg. He's awesome. Oh, you got to see this guy, Nick Swartzen. He's amazing. Oh, you got to see Wanda Sykes. She's the best. Or Wanda Sykes Hall was what she was, um, you know, 18 years ago. But I, um, I would see people and I felt like I was discovering them. And then I would, I would bring them to the teenage world of sleepovers and then I would quote them and then my friends would quote them. And I was accidentally teaching myself comedy in a lot of ways. And my friend, it was, I knew 
probably pretty quickly that's what I wanted to do. So I told a couple of friends that I felt I could trust. And I, you know, they bought me, one friend for my birthday bought me like a how to do comedy book. Um, another friend introduced me to her friend that she worked with that had done stand up. He'd done it for a year. And in my mind, you know, he was an open micer, but he was giving me advice. And I was like, I'm getting the best advice from the business. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you don't know when you're a kid. I was 15 years old. But I, I immediately started writing stand-up, showing my stand-up to friends, trying to hone my stand-up, um, learn, learn and watch other people. And it wasn't until 16 that I got on stage, even though I started writing when I was 14. But I think even just that act of writing and showing my friends and practicing in my room was an education. Yeah. So one of the things I loved about you in, in the early days when I first got to know you was if there was a new comic who you hadn't seen, you were sitting in the back of the room. You had to watch them. Yeah. Is that still the case? Do you still watch a lot of stand-up after all these years? I still watch a lot of stand-up. I don't know if I'm as open to new comedy. Um, <laughs> only because I'll get really frustrated. Um, both because, you know, I'm sure you get this, the, the, the shoot up, shooting up of success when they've been in it for two years and you're like, cool. Cool. That feels good. Um, so <laughs> I, I will acknowledge that my ego sometimes prevents me from watching some of the newer comics, although I am very open to ha helping, suggesting, connecting. I will never get in the way of somebody's growth, but I might not be a willing aunt to always watch their growth. Um, but I, I mean, from friends to peers to specials that are on TV, it's still my favorite thing. It still makes me feel better. It's still, um, on a bad day, it can turn my day around. A good joke, like Mark Norman just put out his special like a week ago. He has probably one of the best abortion jokes I have ever heard. And I have watched just that joke a couple of times and have shared it and shown my friends. And it's just so smart and well done and i gut laughed i i do sometimes like there'll be some comics that are like ah, i don't laugh anymore and i'm like that's sad that's why we got into this what do you mean you don't laugh anymore i laugh getting coffee with adrian as she's like talking about an ex-boyfriend it's not even a joke and i'm on the floor being like write that down adrian that's so funny like i just it's my favorite thing to do i think comedy to be a comedian and have trouble laughing now i think is sad and so I feel grateful that it's still my favorite thing to watch comedy and my goal when I was a teenager was to get just to get good enough that I could go to shows for free so <laughs> there's a part of me that's like living the dream I know I am I'm literally living the dream it there is nothing cooler than the fact that Ted Alexandro is a friend of mine or Jim Gaffigan has tweeted my stuff before or you know Adam Ferrara is one of my favorite people who hosted my, uh, I think my second TV appearance. Um, so there's these people that went from being somebody I looked up to, to uh, being my peers, to now being my friends. And, you know, um, you know, Colin Quinn is how I got into the cellar and, and retweeted my stuff and was even thinking about um, directing my special. And that to me is a gift I could have never predicted. This person that has always influenced the way he talks about history, the way he does even just long form comedy and just the heart that he has. I mean, there's, I don't, 
I would have to fight somebody if they ever said he wasn't the kindest person in the business. So the relationship I have to comedy has only gotten stronger and, and, um, and, and more exciting in a lot of ways. And I appreciate the fact that I still have almost teenager childlike wonder towards comedy. I still get excited by a good joke, especially by, even if it is somebody I don't know, but I feel really giddy that it's often somebody I do know. Yeah. Let's, um, let's talk about your first TV appearance. Was that live at Gotham? Yes, it was live at Gotham on Comedy Central. I taped it when I was 22 and it aired when I was 23. Yeah, so I was at your first uh, TV taping. I went to see you, if you remember. Yeah, I did. Um, uh, and there was, um, you were surprisingly not nervous. You were surprisingly- Stupidity ready. really helps. <laughs> um, ignorance is bliss in those kind of situations where I was like, I got this. Now I think I'm more nervous than I've ever been. Um, maybe because really? I haven't, yeah, I, I care more and more people are watching and, um, I've also lost opportunities and now I'm very nervous about losing opportunities when it can only, you get less and less of them as you go along. And while I still feel like I'm a young person, I am an old person in the business and I am overlooked because I am known and I haven't popped off in people's eyes. So I think opportunities, auditions, people watching me that are important tend to make me a little more nervous because I have business experiences that make me tense up. Well, you know, when I was 22, I was like, this is the beginning. <laughs> it's all gonna work out. And now I'm 34 and I'm like, I've messed up a lot. <laughs> you have bills, Liz, don't fuck up. <laughs> well, you know, we, we all have bills, but I'm going to point out something to you that somebody pointed out to me when when I was uh, 39. You've now been doing stand-up more than half your life. Yeah. You know, you, you clearly know what you're doing, you know. Yeah, I think, and I know you've experienced this. I mean, I feel every comic's experienced this. You get to a point where there's a confidence in what you're doing and you believe in yourself and your friends believe in you and the audience believes in you, but the, the all-knowing industry gods go, no. And you go, even if they're wrong, they still affect me. Yeah. And, and that's, where, that's, where, that's where I struggle with is, and, and in a lot of ways, putting out my special on YouTube, uh, self-producing and, and, and self-releasing my special, um, me being the, the last say on what it's gonna look like, what it's gonna sound like. If I'm being very honest, my favorite part of my special is my closing credits. Like, it was an idea I had, um, I made it, uh, I edited it with my roommate, and in my mind, I'm like, this is like a music video I wanted to make when I was 16, and it's silly and it's weird and it almost doesn't match my standup, and I'm proud of it. And like, it's long, like my special is an hour and five minutes. Where would that have gone? What jokes would have had to been cut if it was put on somewhere else? Um, how much shorter would my credits have been? Or who would have said, hey, I don't like that outfit. Why do you have so many cats on it? Like who would have known somebody's output, somebody's input would have affected my output. And now the flip side of, of not being accepted by the industry 
is I know my ideas are good and I'm going to put them out exactly the way I want to. I'm going to say this joke exactly the way I, I've always said it on stage and it has always gotten the right reaction and I'm going to put my footage out exactly the way I intended it to be put out. And I want to talk about that because um, singularly, uh, oddly, you're like family to me. So the most- you're my family. <laughs> the most proud I've ever been of you, uh, all time was damaged. Do you remember? Yeah, really? Oh, yeah. You know the poster's still hanging in my office, right? Yes, that makes me so happy. Um, and it's one of the things that I point to with young comics all the time. Um, at the time you put Damage Down, <clears throat> pardon me, losing my voice a little bit, you were getting a barrage of rejections from the industry, as we all do. That's yeah. kind of what we do. Uh, and you turned around and you just said, I have an idea for a cartoon. I'm not a cartoonist. I'm making it. And you went, you moved hell in high water to get it done. If I remember correctly, you lost an, an animator in the middle of doing this. I've lost six animators. Six an <laughs> I went through six animators for a 12 you know, episode. 12 episodes came out to be about 22 minutes. It's my pilot if it ever became something. Right. But I, you know, and my budget that because I did a Kickstarter to get it, my budget was for the young animators that were like in college or right out of college. But every time I lost an animator, people were like, I would never animate for this little money. I was like, but this is what I have. So you need to work with me. Yeah. And I, I had to end up paying like a couple thousand dollars out of pocket just to get the last episode out so that I could finish the series because I was like, I literally was like, I can't stop at the 11th episode. I thought, I think all my therapy that I've done was to emotionally hold up my animator that was like, I can't do it. I was like, you can do it and you will do it. <laughs> I was like, here is money. Here is encouragement. Here is a mom like love. Please finish this last episode. I need you to. So my, the thing is the animations all over the place. Cause I had six animators over 12 episodes. Wow. But what I remember most is the sheer amount of fight that you did to get that done. It, it was, it was one of the most telltale things I had ever seen as, as an artist, not just as a comedian, but you had a vision and you wanted it done your way. And so you fought to do it and you got it. And, and I point to that with, with comics and they said, to me, that's how you learn to do all the other stuff you're doing. You know, the, the fact that you stuck to that and just fought for that so hard. What was the experience like for you when you got that first taste of this is going to go the exact way I want it to go, was that liberating for you? Eye opening? It didn't go the exact way I wanted it to go, but I think, so first of all, thank you. I mean, I'm really proud of it. And you know, it's, I still think there's hope for it to, to reach a larger market, but I still get emails when people discover my standup, they'll discover my animated web series and I'll get a lot of love from it. And, um, and it's for kids. Like that's the funniest part is it's, it's very me, but it's also very different from me. The fact that it's animation, it's for children, blah, blah, blah. But I, so there's a little bit of a story. So I, I, you know me at that time, it was probably the saddest I've ever been. Um, I was going through a really bad breakup. I was living with my ex. It was clearly over and it, it, hurt for all the reasons. My first love, you know, um, my first real relationship. Um, I was homeless and living with my sister for a couple of months. And I was like, 
I was emotionally not okay. Um, and the catalyst of even the idea came from a fact that I felt broken. And I've always felt, because it's about robots and broken robots, I've always felt like I didn't express myself the way other people express themselves and that I didn't love people the way other people loved people and there was something wrong with me. So I've always liked robots. I've always related to robots, but even robots, I was like, I'm a broken robot. <laughs> like I was like, I'm not even like a high end robot. I am a like thrown aside, you're not worth fixing robot. So I was the saddest I've ever been. I was the loneliest I've ever been. And I was um, really beaten down both from an emotional connection place but from a creative place with all the rejection I was receiving, I lost my manager all in the same year. It's like, I lost my boyfriend, my apartment, my manager, um, a couple other like big rejections. So damaged was this idea where I was like, I don't know how to write scripts. I uh, don't know how to animate. I don't know how to draw. Um, I don't know anybody that does do these things and I don't know how to put something together. And I just started researching. And I think the, the thing I like about, I would say my genetics because my dad is like this. Um, I don't know how to do something. I'll figure it out. Like that's my dad. I don't know how to do something. Let's figure this out. And my dad was like a good example is like my dad was a super in the seventies and he didn't know how to do anything. So like somebody's oven would be broke. So he would go and he'd be like, I think it's this little doohickey in the back. Let me, let me go get that doohickey from my oven, put it here. And if it works, I'll order that part and then the oven will be fixed. And he would be like, oh, it is that thing. And, and, and then fast forward, my, um, my old friend from high school, he's a super uh, in Philly and he's a mechanic, but like, again, something would be broken and he'd be like, let me go watch a tutorial on YouTube. Let me see. And he'd be like, this oven, this make, let me go look at it. And I feel like the people I surround myself with and the, the father that I had taught me that nobody knows what they're doing. And you have to use your intuition your resources and your resources could be the internet. It could be your friends. It could be your peers. Um, it could be just observation. And so I needed money. I needed animators. Um, I needed um, somebody kind of look over my scripts and I, I needed in some ways just to have a project to believe that I'm worth people's time and energy. And it was probably doing my Kickstarter was the first time that I realized I had a fan base because I raised, all the money I asked for in two days. It was a month long Kickstarter. I raised it in two days. I got on the front page of new Kickstarters. I um, got on the front page of animated, like the animated creative, whatever, like art Kickstarter page. And my fans, friends, and, and, and family came through in a way that I was shocked. And I had studied Kickstarter for like two months because I was like, I've never used this before. Let me see the Kickstarters that are successful to see if I can get the money. And so then I got the money and I was like, okay, let me, let me look at the web series that are successful to see who's going to watch my web series and how to put it out. And then I connected with Frederator, um, Fred, his name, and then the company's called Frederator. They made some of my favorite cartoons right now. I can't think of them, but I think it was like Ed, Ed and Eddie and a couple of other like Nickelodeon cartoons but I got connected with them. They liked it and they taught me how to, they put me on their community page, but they taught me how to structure my web series to get more views. And it, it's still a very valuable connection that I have, but like everything was this 
belief that just because I don't know doesn't mean I can't do it. And I think I had that with stand up, but I think, and I think being, you know, starting young, working towards it and being a, you know, I got into the clubs when I was 19. Um, I was on TV by the time I was 23. I was getting paid gigs very early. I was a part of this community very early. It taught me that even though I have no experience, no connections, I can teach myself to get good at something. And I think that experience helped me do other stuff that I don't like. And so I could say doing damage is what helped me do my, my albums on my own. Cause I self-produced mm -hmm. and self-released both my albums, but then also doing something like a special, which it's funny. I'm getting messages from fans that are like, how are you making money? And I'm like, I'm not making much of it. Like, you know, I, I yeah. knew if I didn't sell it, it was going to be a financial hole that was going to take me a while to get out of. But I also understood the same way I understood with damage and anything else that I worked on that it's not about making the money right now. It's about making connections with fans, proving what I'm worth so that in the future I can make bank. And I do think this special is going to prove that. Yeah, <clears throat> it's a great special. So, and it's available on your YouTube, your YouTube channel. I'm losing my ability to speak English, uh, <laughs> which is uh, youtube.com slash Liz Mealy. Yeah. So you gotta, you gotta go see that. I did want to talk about a couple other things that um, are, are kind of awesome that, that you've done. And actually, uh, the first one is the one that you're known for. Um, feminist, sex position, uh, feminist sex positions, which you did on Live at Gotham. Was it live in Gotham? Uh, Gotham, Gotham Comedy, Comedy Live. Live. Yes. Which is, was on Access, and that yeah, was like the second, later. the second incarnation of the show. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, blew up and became, you know, I, I I literally do not know a woman who has not, when I say I'm a comedian, go, oh, do you know Liz Mealy? She doesn't, you know, it, it's, yeah. it blew up, and it yeah. blew up in a big way. But we can't control what's going to blow up or what's not going to blow up. Yeah. What's more amazing to me is how quickly and how successfully you capitalized on it. You understood, I think, earlier than most comics, the importance of a fan base on the internet, the importance of YouTube, and the importance of you know Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Can you talk a little bit about about how you came to realize that and your process? It came from a defeatist place. If I'm being perfectly honest, you know, everything I kind of created was because I was experiencing so much rejection and I wasn't able to produce the stuff I wanted to do. I, it took me a long time to realize all comics aren't the same. Just like you were saying, like everybody's process is very different. I think people's goals, in my mind, a comedian was this and everybody's goals was this. And as I became friends with other comics, I was like, wait, your goal isn't to tour the country doing your hour. Your goal isn't to come out with albums like George Carlin. Your goal, you know, I was just kind of like, your goal isn't to have a sitcom. Like I had such a 1995 idea of a successful comic. And I was so old school in my goals and what I believed a comic was that when I met people that didn't have those goals, it kind of blew my mind. But what also blew my mind is when I wasn't achieving them, when I thought I should be achieving them at the timeline I thought it should be happening, I was devastated. I mean, truly like deep depression, devastated. Like I would say 10 years in when I was really hitting a wall, you know, 
I feel good about my career, but I still have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder and I still get frustrated that I'm 18 years in. I have never had a half hour present. I have never been on late night. I have never gone to the Montreal Comedy Festival. There's these pillars um, that people believe you're not a comic until these things happen. You can't make a career until these things happen. You can't have a fan base until these things happen. And not only have they never happened, um, I am doing better than a lot of my friends, both career-wise and financially, than my friends that have done all of those. So I, it's a mindset and I spent many years being extremely, I'm embarrassed in some ways and proud in some ways, but there were a couple of years where I was really bitter and I felt like I wasn't getting the attention that I deserve and that I was being overlooked. And whether those feelings are valid or not, it doesn't matter because how you, everyone is doing, everyone that's doing comedy for the most part, especially in New York City, are pretty brilliant. They're good people, they're smart people, they're talented people, they're hardworking people. So if you're going into this being like, I'm funny, I'm hardworking, I'm kind, why am I not getting my due diligence? You're like, or my justice, you're like, yeah, everybody is. Like you're not fucking special and there's a limited amount of uh, spots for late night and club dates and TV appearances that, that this belief that you're only good if you get those is demoralizing to you and it's belittling to other people. So I had to change my frame and my thought process that just because I don't have them doesn't mean I'm not worthy of them and it doesn't mean I'm not worthy of success. So that was like a mental shift that I needed to have and it I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. When I lived with Carmen Lynch, I cried at the kitchen table every day and she had to basically say that to me. You are, you are worthy. You are great. It'll work out. I don't know how it's going to happen. The next thing is I lost my manager who was a great manager, but I lost him at a time where not only was I getting a lot of rejection, but he ended up moving on to a different career path. And I know, and I couldn't get another manager and I no longer had an in to get further on, I, on my own. So it was a time when I started taking social media seriously, Facebook was big. Um, Twitter was big. Instagram wasn't a thing yet. So we're talking about, about eight years ago. And my thought process was this. I couldn't get a manager. I couldn't get on TV. I have no way of somebody representing me because that's what a manager or an agent does. They go, hey, you should check out this girl. She's really funny. I didn't have that. So I decided, what do I have? I have... I have social media and social media is going to be my manager. Social media is going to tell people about me. So then it was about how do I learn to get good at it? Because I had already seen a little bit of the benefits from very rudimentary usage of it, which is when I joined Facebook, I was on MySpace, but I really don't think I used it in any real way. Facebook, people would be like, can you post this flyer for this bar show that you're on or you know, I started every day being, cause I was doing spots. I was doing two spots a night almost every single night. Cause it, that was always important to me. Were they quality spots? Probably not, but it didn't matter at that time. So I would be like, Hey guys, I'm going to be at, you know, um, can't think of like, uh, I'm going to be at Rafifi tomorrow uh, at this time. I'm going to be at, you know, fucking, there's so many bars that are dead now. It makes me sad, yeah. but I'm going to be at, you know, this bar at this time. And, and so what would happen is I would run into comics and they'd be like, wow, you're getting up a lot. And it was the first time that I was like, I'm getting up the same amount. You know that I'm getting up now. And that was the first time that I realized 
being that I was never good at FaceTime. I'm not a big drinker. I actually don't drink at all anymore. And I was never a hanger outer. I have a lot of social anxiety. And, you know, because it's a drinking culture, if you're not drinking or you're not talking about sports in some situations, you're not, you know, whatever. I was never that person. So I was losing out on the comedic connection and FaceTime in real life, but I was accidentally learning that social media was a different form of FaceTime. So now fast forward, I decided to make social media my, my manager and I start reading Gary Vaynerchuk's books. I start reading Seth Godin who talks about marketing and stuff. I start reading all these different types of social media books that are now obsolete by the way, because social media and the internet work so fast that a book that comes out is almost obsolete by the time it comes out. Things are moving at a pace of every three to six months. But at the time it was a little slower and there are some rud like basic knowledge and rudimentary ideas of social media, social media that build on itself. But I started to implement what um, companies do. I started to treat myself like a company and almost kind of separate myself from my comedy. This isn't my comedy. My comedy is a book that I'm selling. My comedy is a web series I'm doing. My comedy is an al album that I'm pitching. My comedy is a show you should go to. So I started separating myself that it's not my comedy, it's this entity. And I would, I was starting to do basic stuff like, it's like the rule of four, which is if, if you were Colgate, you would, um, talk, you would give out free tooth enamel information. You wouldn't ask for anything. You wouldn't be like, hey guys, we have this new toothpaste. You wouldn't be selling me anything. You'd basically be saying, hey, it, did you know flossing can prevent uh, dental bills up to 50%? Or did you know that tartar is built because of X, Y, and Z reasons? You'd be giving out facts or you'd be giving out free samples. You'd be giving instead of taking. And you would do that three out of four posts. Then one post would be like, we have this new teeth whitening thing that you should buy. It's only $3.99 and it's at every CVS. And I started to do the same thing. So it would be like, here's a tweet for free. Here's a stand-up thing for free. Here's my thoughts for free. Hey guys, I have a show this Friday at, you know, the comedy cellar, come see me. And so I started implementing the fact that my free thing is my humor. And I was going to give, I was going to write. So I started simple with just every single day I would write a funny thought or a, a joke or whatever. And that progressed into funny pictures. It progressed into putting my stand up online. And then when I started putting albums out, I would pick like five jokes that would be jokes that represent that album, but they represent me. And then I would, pitch them to magazines, to blogs, to friends, to retweet, um, and, and try to get them moving. And that's how I got feminist, feminist exposition to take off is I wrote to 10 feminist blogs. And some of them I had the email because of other friends that had connections. And it would be like, you know, Hey Sarah, I have this thing. I don't know if it's something your website could use, but I just wanted to show it to you. And then sometimes it was a website. I had no connection and I would fill out their form wrong. So the, the first blog to, to, um, break my video and help it get to like, I think 200,000 views very quickly was this blog called Everyday Feminist, Everyday Feminism, I think. And I filled out their form wrong. It was like, why do you want to be a writer for Everyday Feminism? I was like, I don't, I just have this joke. I think you might like it. What about feminism is important to you? I was like, it's not really, I just have this joke. I think you might like it. They were like, as a feminist, I was like, I'm a feminist, but like, it's not my identity. I just have this joke. <laughs> like, you know, and I filled it out and I filled it out with, like I said, like 10 different people, but they, without even telling me, somebody was just like, hey, I saw you on Everyday Feminist. And then other blogs started picking it up. And even that cycle was something I read from a book. And you know, most people are like, if I get into the New York Times, I'll be famous. 
yeah, but if you get into a blog that has 10,000 uh, viewers as opposed to shooting for somebody that has millions, you already don't have 10,000 viewers. Start with something that's a little more of a, a step rather than a leap. And then from the step, you can take a jump. And then from the jump, you can take a leap. But there's people that are like, I'm awesome. Everybody should know I'm awesome. The New York Times should know I'm awesome. Yeah, well, there's a bunch of awesome people that have a fan base and New York Times is a dying newspaper. Let them, let, they are just as much want Kevin Hart as, as, as Kevin Hart wants the New York Times. So you have to start with somebody that sees equal value to you. So the, uh, the other part of it that I absolutely loved was you, you're not afraid to ask people to retweet. You're not afraid to ask people to, you know, to support your, you also, your community is participatory with what you do. How long did it take you to realize that they were there for you? Cause they, your fan base is like, I want to hug your fan base. Because, <laughs> that makes me happy. <clears throat> no, there've been a couple of times where I've looked at your post and somebody wrote something unkind towards you. Let's put that yeah. that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they're like, I want to kill this fucker. And then all of a sudden I'm reading 50 tweets of people calling that guy an asshole. Yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah. how long did it take you to realize that it was, it wasn't just you reaching out to anonymous people. It was a relationship. Um, because I don't start by asking people for stuff. I start by being there for people. So, you know, you're a, a huge influence on me for that. You from day one have always uh, made sure I was okay emotionally, made sure I was okay financially, made sure I was okay comedically. And whenever, and I wasn't, when we met, I wasn't in a place that I could go, hey, Jim, I'm not okay, both emotionally, financially, right. or comedically. You, as an empathetic, uh, thoughtful person, would see that I wasn't writing. Like, I still tell this story on podcasts. I remember this day so fucking clearly. We were on the road together because you were one of the first people to believe in me and to take me on the road with you. I remember you were driving me home. We had done a bunch of gigs together. I was still in college. I was probably like a junior or senior in college. And we were getting close to my apartment. You park and I was like, bye Jim. And you're like, actually Liz, I wanted to talk to you about something. And I was like, okay. And you were like, um, when's the last time you wrote? And I was like, what do you mean? You're like, well, it just seems like you've been doing the same stuff for the last six months. When's the time you wrote? And I was very, I was a dick. I was very defensive. I was just like, I'm in college and I'm fucking, you know, I'm busy. And you're like, okay. Like I was being a dick and, and I was always very defensive when anybody called me on my shit. Um, and you were like, okay, I would, I, you know, I get that we're all busy, but you know, real growth comes from writing. And it was a very brief conversation and I hated you, um, for probably about a week. And it's, it's happened a lot with my therapist because was, this was years before I got into therapy. My therapist would say something and I'd be like, you don't fucking know me. And I would hate her. And then I'd be like, oh, I hate her because she's right. Like she, she hit something that's a sore point. And I wasn't writing and I was uh, overwhelmed and embarrassed. And I, your voice is in my head a lot of times where I go, am I doing exactly what, am I making excuses or am I not fully being the comic that I want to be? So all this kind of goes back to the fact that what was it? the original question was, um, when did you know your base was there for you? Exactly. Is because I had people very early in my life, like you, like my friends that I still have today that kept me, called me on my shit. Um, and, and were supporters of me. And so I appreciate it. Even when I couldn't be supportive of them back, I had so many positive influences of people being supportive of me creatively, 
financially and emotionally when I was incapable of being that person for them, that by the time I got um, more farther along in my career, emotionally healthier and financially stable, I thought whether people ask me or not, I'm going to be there for other people because it was so important to my own growth and it was so nurturing. So it went from people taking care of me without me asking to me taking care of other people without them asking so that when I did need help and learning how to ask for help, I not only knew when I needed to ask, but I didn't feel embarrassed to ask because I was undoubtedly over enthusiastically and unwaveringly there for other people. And um, a, a fan left me a comment, not even a fan, a fan of somebody else. So like, I forget who it was. I think it might've been like Nick, Nick Griffin or, or Gary Goldman retweeted my special. And somebody wrote, I've never heard of this girl, but seeing how many of her peers have retweeted it lets me know that not only is she kind, but she is extremely funny and I look forward to watching this. And I was like, that is probably one of the nicest comments I've ever received from a stranger because my goal is to spread kindness and support and, and be there for my friends and for my peers that I, I believe in. And it was, it's not an overnight kind of thing. You can go matching with people. You can be like, I retweeted you, will you retweet me? I, there's nothing wrong with that, but I've always thought I'm gonna give more than I get. And if I ever need them, great, or that's nice that they'll be there for me, but it's never like, I'm gonna retweet them for 10 years so that I can ask for this one favor. It was always, how would I would like to be supported and how have people supported me in the past? I'm gonna do that for other people. And if I do need support, I'm gonna be strong enough and believe in myself enough that they will be. And there's people that haven't retweeted and I think nothing of it, whether, you know, there's people, like I'm friends with a lot of like artists, like street artists and painters, and they've come back and been like, hey, my, my brand isn't to retweet other people, but I can leave a comment. And I'm like, totally fine, totally get that. There's no, um, if you don't support me in this exact way, you're a bad friend or you're a bad um, uh, part of my community. It's uh, me being willing to be like, hey, I could use help in this area. And then being like, I can help you in this area, but I can't help you in that area. Is that okay? Totally okay. But that takes, just like my foundation in social media, those friendships and connections and community take years. And there's a really good, um, do you like Brene Brown? Do you know who she is? I don't know who she is. Okay, so she has the highest viewed TED Talk of all time. She is very important to my emotional growth. Uh, she now has a Netflix special, if we both want to be jealous, because she is not a comedian. She is a researcher and um, talker, I don't know, uh, person. But basically, her, her TED Talk is called Vulnerability. And it was very, I mean, I've, I probably watch it every year. I'm not good at vulnerability. And it was very important to me to understand the importance of it and how it builds connection. But she does another talk for Oprah years later. And you could literally put in Brene Brown, trust Oprah talk. And um, it's all about how trust is built. And it was, it's so, she's so good at breaking down. And you, you and I both innately know this, but I don't think we knew that we were doing it. But basically what you were doing, let's use our friendship you were doing is um, without me asking, just being a caring person, you would help me out. And they call, she basically would say, this is a jar of marbles. So you would drive me home from a gig. That's a marble in a jar. Here's somebody that cares enough about me to make sure I get home safe. You would recommend me for a gig. That's another marble in this jar. You think I, I deserve um, uh, uh, eyes and, and ears on me and you support what I do as a career. You see that I'm upset and you listen to me in a car. That's another marble. We clearly drove a lot together. These are all we, car examples. We've so <laughs> driven a lot of hours together. But <laughs> what I'm saying is 
over weeks, months, yeah. years, you were there for me. And not to say we haven't had miscommunications, not to say that we haven't had issues, but if we, if every time you're there for me is this huge jar of marbles, if you miss a phone call, if you yell at me, if um, you don't recommend me for something because you don't think I'm ready or good enough, which could hurt my feelings, maybe it, it takes a marble out of a jar, but there's so many marbles that it doesn't even affect our foundation. And, and this is all her example, by the way, but mm -hmm. That's what I kind of learned is intrinsically, I like to help people and be there for people so that by the time I ask for a favor and I want to take something out of, or if I don't show up as a friend the way I would have because I'm depressed or I'm anxious or I'm overwhelmed or what have you, it doesn't ruin the foundation of friendships, both in a comedic um, with fans, the, the connection I have with fans and both the connection I have with um, my friends and my peers, because this foundation was built over sometimes 18 years. Um, and you learn that it doesn't, it's not as strong with fans and you're always going to have fair weather fans. They don't know you as a person. They believe that you need to be perfect because you're a, um, a, a, a person in the public eye. But what I have learned is that fans that see me for not just my comedic purposes, but for my human purposes often don't take out marbles or there's such a foundation from over the years that if they don't like a joke, or they're upset about something, it doesn't ruin our foundation. And I think most comics aren't building that fan foundation, both in their private life and in their public life. Wow, yeah, that's that's amazing, actually. That's kind of eye-opening. I want to yeah. talk about two more things because you're being very generous with your time. Um, one is something that I am unbelievably proud uh, of watching you do, and that is more and more you've been talking about mental health stuff uh, both on stage and uh, I know you uh, you hosted uh, an interview blog uh, for I'm trying to remember I'm the Jed Foundation Jed Foundation yeah uh, where you could bring uh, attention to it and it seems to be something of a passion when I started in stand up we you can't talk about those things you make the audience uncomfortable but I'm starting to see performers like you and Gary Goldman and some other performers who are willing to talk about these things on stage and to destigmatize it, what, what's made you more vocal over the years? Um, the belief that it doesn't make me less than, because it's never made my family less than, it's never made my friends less than. Um, you know, I have, uh, and also understanding my own mental health and not only acknowledging it, but taking care of it and being less embarrassed about it when I, I'm not the best version of myself. But as somebody that suffers from anxiety, suffers from depression, um, you know, deals with OCD, uh, um, has had a family that has dealt like, you know, my brother's bipolar one. Um, my mother has definitely dealt with depression. My sisters have dealt with depression. Uh, my father has dealt with depression. Suicide runs in my family. Um, uh, I have friends that are clinically depressed. I have friends that are current alcoholics, recovering alcoholics, current drug addicts, recovering drug addicts, um, uh, friends that have dealt with uh, uh, child abuse, friends that have dealt with uh, um, uh, sexual abuse. Um, I have an arsenal of damaged people that are some of the smartest, kindest, bravest, funniest people I've ever met. and my thought process is I used to think of myself as damaged and there was something wrong with me. And now my thought is my, my, my damage 
is what makes me a good person, is what makes me a strong person, what makes me a thoughtful person, what makes me an empathetic person. And therapy, certain books, um, uh, both self-help books, but also, uh, uh, have you ever read uh, A First Rate Madness? No. Such a good, you would love this book. The fact that I haven't made you read this book is uh, detrimental and upsetting to me. It came out about 10 years ago and the thesis of the book is in, and it's almost so perfect in a lot of ways, in a time of stability, uh, you, want, you, um, you want somebody that's clearly men mentally stable and a time of chaos, you want somebody that's mentally ill because of both how mental illness works, but also the struggles and resilience that comes from dealing with mental illness makes you prepared for chaos. And they give examples with um, Ulysses S. Grant, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, um, uh, Abraham Lincoln, different people that suffered from depression and mental illness and why their experiences with them made them great leaders. And it was such, it was one of the first books I ever read that talked about the positivity of mental illness while every single book talks about what's wrong with you and what you have to do to fix it. And I'm not saying my illness and the illnesses in my friends and family isn't detrimental in many times and hard and does need uh, tools and medication and what have you to be taken care of in a way that keeps them healthy, but it doesn't make us not good people. It doesn't make us not strong people. It doesn't make us less empathetic people. If anything, it makes us, I don't know if better is the right word, but you know, um, at least um, more empathetic. Yeah, but it makes us strong people. And that book talked about, I think it's four pillars of what you gain from mental illness, which is like resilience, empathy, um, uh, I think creativity. And there's like one other that I always forget. I'm sure it's important and I should remember. But I, I truly believe that um, understanding my own illness and my family's illness and my friend's illness is what made me who I am. And I want to make people feel less alone because I felt very alone and kind of like a freak most of my uh, childhood and adulthood. But I also want to empower people to use their struggles to help others. And the Jed Foundation, their whole, the whole charity is suicide prevention and mental illness awareness, especially in teens and young adults. And I think that's um, a really crucial time in setting how people feel about themselves. And um, I want people to not feel that way, especially growing up, um, because I, I think we're losing a lot of important people to this belief that there's something wrong with you when there's so much beauty to living in a, an alternative mind frame. I don't, I've made that really PC. <laughs> Yeah, you Living an internal uh, alternative mind frame, but I'm going to keep it. <laughs> I, I watched the interviews you did. Um, I'm most struck by the one you did with AJ Lee. Yeah. Um, and, and here's what I absolutely loved about it. Um, the ability that you guys both had to laugh at what most people would view as shortcomings, what most people would view as, wow, you're dealing with some heavy shit, but you guys were there like, no, we're still here. It's good. And, and anybody who hasn't listened to at least that one needs to go listen to at least that episode because it's really uplifting. Um, and I also listened to it at a time when I was in a very dark place. So it was also like, oh, yeah, I'm not alone, which yeah. is a nice feeling. Um, last thing I want to talk about, because you are pretty much the queen of this last subject that I want to talk about. Um, Early in my career, I wanted to perform all over the world. In fact, you and I performed uh, 
Alaska, Marshall Islands, Hawaii. Um, you know, and my whole thing was, I just want to see the world. You are seeing the world in droves. You yeah. are, you were all over Europe. You've been to, you've been all over Asia. You've been to, you know, just everywhere where there's a microphone and a willing audience, you're willing to go. I don't think comics realize how difficult it is. I'm not even going to talk about getting the gigs because I'm sure you and I could sit down and talk for two hours on how to get those gigs. But prepping for those gigs, being able to do a a show for an audience. um, I've done it in English-speaking countries. I've done it in the Caribbean. I've done it in Canada. I've done it in, in, you know, I've done it in uh, England, in the UK. You go to places where routinely English isn't in the top three languages of, of the speaking of the country. So how is it for you and how did you find, you know, the adjustments that you needed to make to perform in front of English as a second language countries? Yeah, I think, um, so I started, you know, I started with a, you know, uh, like a starter country. So I kind of very early in my career felt that English people got me more than Americans. Like it was always, you know, New York is very touristy, but it was always English people that would come up to me and they'd be like, ah, you're so great. I don't know how to do accents, but they would be like, ah, love, love, you're amazing. Um, so they would, they were the ones that were coming up to me and like overly being enthusiastic about what I do. And I was like, wow, nobody likes me, but you like me. Maybe I was born in the wrong place. So it kind of was the first place that in my mind, I was like, I want to try to get to England because I think I might be more successful there. I think I might be more appreciated there. And I'm tired of trying in America. <laughs> so it was a little bit of an exa- exacerbated, like, I'm just going to go find my people. Um, it ended up not being my first country. Spain was my first country because a really good friend from college who's a painter um, had an exhibit and I used it as a vacation excuse. And I did my first international show uh, in Spain. And um, it, it went so well. And uh, it's, Spain, Madrid specifically, isn't a a country that most people speak English. Like if you go to Norway or Sweden, most people speak English. Um, Pakistan, I've been to, most people speak English. So there's certain countries where English is the first language or is a uh, influential language. Yeah, that that (coughs) it's, I mean, Swedish people speak better English than we do. That's just a fact. So... (laughs) So Spain was weirdly a big jump and I didn't even know I was making it and it went so well. And then I went and then, you know, I went to England and and, uh, Scotland and that was a bit of a parallel jump. There's a couple of words um, that uh, people would let me know, like, hey, culturally, that's, you know, whatever. But also what really started to click is that most countries take in American uh, TV, movies, music so much. And as somebody that's, maybe if I was from Missouri, my cultural references would be different than a New Yorker, but most movies and shows are placed in New York. So talking about the subway, being an American, um, making cultural references that I didn't really, I was mostly a personal experience, emotional writer that I didn't have a lot, but there's still parts of me that make me American, make me East Coast, make me a New Yorker, that I really didn't have to change much because all around the world, our, our biggest export is culture, is TV, is movies, is music. Um, so my accent didn't trip people up. My, you know, my slang or the words that I used didn't really throw too many people off. And what I talked about 
might have been foreign to their lives, but it wasn't foreign to their their entertainment. Um, so maybe like Pakistan, they didn't want us to talk about religion. I get it, but I didn't really talk about religion to begin with. Um, I did an abortion joke in Malaysia only to, and it didn't do well clearly, only to have two Malaysian women be like, oh, it's illegal here. And I was like, that's something I should have researched. And now I'm gonna start looking into that or not doing that joke. Um, so there's cultural things that I should know about because I'm a dark comedian, because I push the boundaries even in America that I've had to learn. Um, Asia was a huge learning experience for me because Japan, it's, it's not really an English speaking country. Clearly I'm doing English shows. And if I'm honest, 70% of my Asian shows were expats. Um, I did a Singapore, I did two shows in Singapore. The first show was mostly expats. The second show was mostly locals. Um, uh, Philippines was mostly locals. Oh, actually that example was Philippines, not Malaysia. Um, Malaysia was mostly expats. Um, uh, Thailand was mostly expats. So the other thing is that I'm often, some shows like Pakistan was mostly locals. So it's each gig, I, sometimes I don't know who I'm gonna be performing for it. And hopefully when there's multiple shows, I will um, be able to adjust. And honestly, what I've really learned is I don't have to change much. And because I'm innately a personal comic, as opposed to like, hey, I-95 is crazy, isn't it guys? Like, because I'm not this, because I've toured all over the country to begin with, and you have to be a little more universal, just because people are like, how's it like to perform in Sweden? I was like, it's easier than West Virginia. I'll tell you that, like West Virginia feels like a whole nother country compared to Sweden. I like think we did West Virginia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've done West Virginia three times and never again. Sorry, everybody. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I truly feel like Europe, uh, the Middle East and Asia in a lot of ways I've connected um, more so because there's a fish out of water. This is something special. Only the best of the best are able to do what I'm doing that I've been embraced in a way that I haven't been in America. That's amazing. So I ask every comic this, uh, two questions. Uh, first one is, what do you wish you knew when you started that you know now about comedy? Um, I wish I knew, hmm. I wish I knew that I should have stayed underground a little longer. Like I was so desperate for attention and I was so driven to be seen and successful that I was seen by people too early and these, what I didn't realize that people give you that first opportunity once. And if you don't blossom or take off, they think you're never gonna take off. And it's really, 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 really hard to get a second chance. And I feel like I was like truly like handed my first opportunity in a way that I'm sure older comics were jealous. And then it didn't blossom. Some of it was my emotional and comedic fault. Um, that I've spent the last 10 years trying to prove that I deserve a second chance and that I'm more than ready now. And it's emotionally, physically, and financially exhausting in a way that I, if I had stayed a little more underground until I was polished and more mature as a comedian, comedian and a person, I think I would have not had to work so hard. Um, uh, but in some ways, the flip side of that is I think I'm a stronger comic because I was, I had to work harder, if that makes sense. It does. And then finally, because you've been incredibly generous with your time, thank you so much. 
Where should people go if they've never seen you before to get the first look at Liz Mealy? What should they watch first? Um, it depends on how invested you are in me. If you want to go full in, um, I have my newest special on YouTube, but I also put my first album, the video of my first album, which is about five years old. I put it on YouTube at the end of March. Um, it's called Emotionally Exhausting. So is it completely who I am? It's a little more monotone. There's definitely parts of me that, you know, there's Tinder jokes on there, pretending like Tinder. Not pretending like Tinder is a new thing, but it's referenced that way because the jokes are like eight years old. But um, uh, I think YouTube is the best way to watch clips and see full hours of what I do, as well as you can see podcasts and interviews and um, uh, my web series Damaged, my web series Apartment C3. You can kind of see um, my full body of work on YouTube. Well, great. Liz, thank you so much. And I hope that the uh, pandemic ends soon and you can be on stage in some country and I can read about it and live vicariously through you again soon. Same, dude. I can't wait to perform together. Yeah, that'll be fun. All right. Thank you so much to Liz Mealy for dropping in today. And I'll be back to wrap it up in just a second. There is just so much for us to absorb in this conversation. So many times where Liz has taken body blows from the industry, reinvented herself, folded herself into her work, and came back even stronger than ever. You know, it's a long career. At the end of the day, you have to constantly reinvigorate yourself. You have to constantly rebuild. And Liz does that through hard work, dedication, writing, performing, uh, but most of all, through research. If she doesn't know an answer to something, she finds it. And that's something we can all learn from. We are going to be back next week uh, with another great guest here on the Comedy Legacy Series. Uh, until then, please like, subscribe, leave comments, follow. If you happen to be listening to us on iTunes, please leave a review and rate the podcast. That would help us so much. But until next week, have a great week, guys. Keep writing. Keep performing. And we'll see you next time on the Comedy Legacy Series. Bye-bye, everybody. This has been a new Media Comedy Worldwide production.